everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. I honestly felt like I had zero defenses because it seemed like over the course of my experience going through the criminal justice system that the truth didn't matter, that my innocence didn't matter. And so it wasn't a weapon against this vicious beast. I was defenseless. And so to suddenly be like relieved of that chase, to be plucked out of this like ongoing vicious cycle was relief, relief, relief. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to have you on the show. So thank you for being here. I want to start off to take you back to Seattle in the 90s. And look at it. <laughs> like, I just I get this vision of like grunge bands. Like I can't not Nirvana in my head when I think about that time. But I want to take you back there. But I have a little different lens than a grunge band. I want to take it from the perspective of your German ancestry. Okay. So sure. I'm, as you know, I'm here in Italy. This is new for me. I'm I'm into this whole European vibe. But you know, you sort of grew up with this German, you know, background, this German ancestry. And yeah. you, uh, you, you ate things like goulash and rot kraut and uh, mm-hmm. you drank Fervent Vision Vision Vergelot. Feuerzangenbulle. Yeah, But that only one. on Christmas. <laughs> and, and speaking of Christmas, you lit candles, like real fire candles on Christmas trees. Yeah. Can you describe what that time in your life was like and perhaps how that German heritage impacted you. Sure. Um, So you're right. The 90s in Seattle was very grunge bandy, although I was still in elementary school at the time. So I was more rugrats than a grudge band. Um, But yes, I grew up in a very multicultural household and... um, a close environment. All of my family was within, lived within walking distance. And um, despite the fact that my parents were divorced, like my dad lived two blocks away. So I very easily moved between households. I very much felt like I was a part of a small village, even though I lived in a big city. And I, you know, I grew up with my Oma, who took very, very close care of me. She is 
a German woman. She actually was born in East Prussia and then grew up in Austria and eventually married an American soldier who was uh, stationed in Germany. So that's how that whole love story came about. My mom was born in Germany. Um, and though we did not, I did not grow up speaking German in the household in part or in large part because when my mom uh, moved here to the United States with my Oma, my Oma was told to not speak German in the home so that the kids would learn English. And that's how that bit of culture was stolen from us. But we still had a very German um, experience. I um, a very sort of stoicism was a big part of it. Um, big family values um, coming together uh, at least once a week, the entire family to eat dinner together, um, eating very very starch and meat heavy dinners, um, and just I, I think the biggest impression that was left upon me was just from a very, very uh, young age, understanding that there are different cultures and different languages and different kinds of people out there in the world. I never, ever had this like shocking experience um, of coming into contact with a new culture and being like, oh, I didn't realize there were new cultures. Like That was deeply a part of my experience. Even moving between my mom's house and my dad's house, I, was, I had a sort of like culture shock in the sense that you know, my dad is a all-American hamburger helper, hot dog kind of guy. And my mom is, we're, we're eating goulash. So this, I wanted to, I felt like an international person ever since I was a young person. And it was always in my family's vision and in my own vision that I would go and study abroad, particularly in Europe. All right, so that's a perfect point. So around 15 you went on vacation to where I am now, Italy. And when you got back, your mom gives you a book and she gives you Under the Tuscan Sun. That? <laughs> That's right. You've done your research. Good I for have. you. <laughs> so you get the book, you read it like the other 30 billion people who read it. Um, and it inspires you. And you're like, mm-hmm. I want I'm, I'm to go, go to Italy, right? What was it for you at that age, at 15, that inspired you to say, I, I, I want to I go there? So I wanted to be a linguist. When I went to um, college, I was studying multiple languages. I was studying German, I was studying Italian. And I, I decided that I wanted to go with Italian because I felt like as a linguist, I should have at least one romance language that I'm familiar with. But I was more drawn to the European version of a romance language as opposed to the, you know, the very traditional, you go with Spanish here in the US. Um, I wanted to have a sort of Eurocentric um, linguistic palette. And because I had visited Italy with my family, I had roots in a way, I I felt a connection to that country more so than say France, which I, I had never visited. So I was studying both of those languages and I actually applied to uh, study abroad programs in both of those countries at the same time. And I happened luck or unluck, whatever it may be, I happened to have been accepted into the Italy program first. So I decided upon Italy. I felt like that was a sign. Um, I knew that there was a really great sister city program between Seattle and Perugia, which was this beautiful small town. Um, not, it wasn't, you know, like Florence or Rome where there's big 
you know, big cities with big like foreign populations. I had I went into Perugia assuming that this was a more quote authentic <laughs> Italian experience where I would be encountering more Italian families and a sm- I just wanted a smaller town vibe. What I didn't know going into this was that there were actually two universities based in Perugia. One was the University of Perugia and the other was the Università per Stranieri. I thought that they only had the Università per Stranieri, which was specifically designed for foreigners who were coming to the um, country to, to learn the language. So I felt like, you know, Kismet, here's a specific university specifically for language. I got accepted to it first. That's where I'm going. So your Italian is really freaking good, and it's pissing me off a little bit because I am, I am <laughs> struggling. <laughs> I am so jealous of that rolling R. I, you know, I walked down the street here, and the other morning, I said to somebody, "Buongiorno," and he goes, "Good mm-hmm. morning," and I was like, <laughs> "I was like, fuck you. Do you have any idea how hard I have been working on that?" Like it's unbelievable at how it just gives you away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like how did you learn? How did you figure out the masculine and the feminine and the conjugations? And like, like, like that's a real question. How did you do it? Um, well, it helped that I learned it in an environment where I had no choice. I was in prison. I was yeah. on trial. No one was there speaking English for me. And I, I was I was just immersed. I was immersed, and I was desperate to communicate. And I so the the practical answer to that is I blathered along like an idiot, and people made fun of me and laughed at me for my horrible Italian until I figured it out. Um, and then I spent a lot of time reading Harry Potter books um, in the Italian versions of Harry Potter books because I had read the the version in English so many times that I was already familiar with the story. So I didn't, it was much easier for me to accomplish the task of reading a book if I already knew where the story was going and I could just focus on the language. And then I would, I, I mean, I was, I'm, I like studying languages anyway. So I like taking apart the puzzle of any given sentence and like yeah. finding out, like identifying what all the pieces are and what they're doing. Um, at a certain point, actually, a friend of mine came to live in Italy for a little while while I was in prison so that she could come and visit me in prison. And she was struggling to learn the language as well. And so what I would do is I would write my letters to her in sort of three different languages. One was in English and then one was in Italian. Like I basically would translate exactly what I was saying in Italian. And then below that, I would show how the how to pick apart the way that the, the sentence was coming together so that the English pieces were moving into the correct spots in the in the Italian. So, like, you know, a good example of this is Ti voglio bene. You um, I want or I'm I want good. So I would explain that to her and then I would say, okay, that equals I love you. Um, But what's literally being translated here is you, I want good. Right. It's, I literally feel like I'm a caveman walking around speaking every time (laughs) I, 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 I'm like, I know that word and I know that word. And so I'm putting them together and they get it. 
They understand mm-hmm. it, but I know I sound horrible. All right, they so accommodate we, you. They, <laughs> That's they, nice. they, 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 tol- they tolerate me. All right, so you, <laughs> so, um, so you mentioned the elephant in the room. There was prison, and anybody. Um, well, let's, let's just say this: the time span of your life between 2007 and 2015 is well documented. You don't need me or you to go through that again. There's a there's, we're, we're going to get into how you're going to use NFTs to actually go through all of this. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> about that later. Um, so do a Google, do a Google search if you want to see between 20, 2007 and 2015. What I'm interested in is picking up the story, uh, picking the story back up on March 27th, 2015, when Italy's highest court rules, this girl's innocent. Okay. Can you take me back to where you were? When you mm-hmm. found out that you were innocent and what that moment felt like in your body. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, that's one of those experiences like where were you on 9-11 for me? Um, potentially even more vivid because everything everything was hinging upon that moment. So where was I physically? I was here in the United States. I was more specifically, I was sitting at the end of the kitchen table in my mother's kitchen. And all of my family had gathered at my mom's house uh, to await this verdict. I it was, I think it was around the morning. It was morning or very, very early afternoon because it was kind of late in Italy. It was already dark in Italy. Um, and we didn't really... So first of all, we couldn't be in direct contact with my lawyers because they weren't allowed to have their cell phones with them in the actual courtroom. So really the courtroom where the verdict was being handed down was a kind of black box for us. We were just sitting there waiting to get a phone call from our my attorneys. And in the meantime... I was frantically on a computer trying to find live streaming of Italian television where I knew that they would be covering the case. Like basically there was a, a, a reporter outside of the courtroom that was, you know, live on TV awaiting the verdict and, you know, interrupting the regular scheduled programming with yet another update that we have five minutes until the Amanda Knox verdict, whatever. So I'm sitting there watching this Italian television person. Like this is how I'm getting the fastest form of communication. And I'm the only one in the room who understands what this Italian (laughs) journalist is saying. Uh, The rest of my family is basically just sitting around me while I am looking at a laptop taking in and like, and they keep asking like, what's, what's he saying? What's he saying? And I'm just saying, he's just waiting. He's just stalling another five minutes. I don't know. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And then, and for some, (laughs) to pull it back a second, um, for some background, my attorneys had told me that what we were hoping for was for the Supreme Court in Italy to overturn my wrongful conviction. Because at that point, I was a convicted person. I I had been reconvicted in absentia after I had been acquitted. And... I was basically waiting to find out whether or not I was going to be sent back for a whole new trial or I was going to be starting an extradition battle. Meanwhile, Raffaele, my co-defendant, my boyfriend at the time who only got roped into this whole story because he was my alibi, 
he was sitting at home with his family and there were cop cars around the house ready to arrest him if the verdict came down. And so it was a very, very heightened emotional moment. I knew what he was going through. I knew what I was potentially about to go through. So my best case scenario was that this wrongful conviction would be overturned and I would have to go back and face yet another trial. So when it the verdict came out, the person, first of all, the journalist who who you know is like, I'm getting news from the courtroom, blah, 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 blah. He he's like shocked. He's like, oh, oh my God, they're innocent. They're found innocent. It's over. It's over. And I I immediately just like gasped. I like at no point did I feel like the that this burden was going to be lifted from my shoulders that day. So the immense like bursting forth from this like heavy weight, just like I, I felt like I had burst through water and I was just sucking in like life air. And my whole family had no idea what my gasp meant. <laughs> they were like, right. wait, wait, what, what happened? What happened? It could, it could have gone and, either way. It could have gone either way. And I I was shaking. I I just said, it's over. It's over. And I, I just kept repeating that. And they were like, what do you mean it's over? Because of course, that's not what our, our lawyers had, like, had prepared us for. And I was like, they're saying I'm innocent. They're saying that it's done. It's done. And so immediately, I everyone's crying. Everyone's laughing. I'm I'm shaking. Um, I immediately call up Raffaele and I'm in my squeakiest voice. I'm just like, it's over. It's over. Oh my God. We're, we're, we're free. Like, and the feeling that I had, um, was like, I'm, I'm not a prey animal anymore. Like I had felt like for the past eight years of my life, I was being hunted down by a malicious wild animal that was completely unpredictable and impulsive and vicious. And I had no control over it. I just had to keep running. And the 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 realization that I no longer had to run anymore, that I no longer had to be constantly reacting to something that was attacking me based on nothing. Like I, I I honestly felt like I had zero defenses because it seemed like over the course of my experience going through the criminal justice system, that the truth didn't matter, that my innocence didn't matter. And so it wasn't a weapon against this vicious beast. I was defenseless. And so to suddenly be like relieved of that chase, to be plucked out of this like ongoing vicious cycle was relief 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 um how long did I, it how long <laughs> did it take for for the adrenaline to stop in your body where you you're like <sighs> i'm putting myself in your shoes and i'm thinking like okay that moment holy shit this is over it's really over but then you go to bed and you wake up mm-hmm. the next morning and you have to be going did was this a dream did this re- like is it really over? How long did it take for you to finally go, it's over? Was it instant? Was it over time? Or is it still not there? So that's a really good question. Because if the circumstances had been, I'm at home with my family and in the privacy of our own lives, we got to put this aside. 
I would still be processing the trauma of that experience to this day. And and indeed, like all of my family is still un- unpacking how this trauma has imprinted itself on our lives. But the further that that wasn't even the circumstances I was in. I was in now there are uh, TV trucks and journalists who are parked outside of my house who are not going to leave until I give them a statement. And my life, like a part of me really hoped that I would get to go back to being a private person with a private life once this whole judicial scandal was over. Um, and the rude awakening that I realized is that no, in fact, um, my life, it's not just the fact that I was on trial that is considered in the public interest, but now my entire life, my identity, anything that ever happens to me, it remains in the public interest. And I am not, I do, I am not afforded the right to privacy the way that a, another person, regular person on the street would be. And grappling with that, grappling with the ongoing perpetual interest in the worst experience of my life and the framing of the worst experience of Meredith's life as this me being inextricably tied to it. Um, And, you know, and when I say that, what I mean is when people think of the murder of Meredith Kircher, they don't think of Meredith Kircher. They don't think of the person who murdered her, Rudy Gaudet. They think of me. And there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. The only thing that I can do is try to pick up the broken pieces of my life and patch together some kind of recreation of my own identity and story by my own hand. And that has been the ongoing work and struggle and trauma that I'm still managing to this day, this feeling of not being the authoritative voice of my own life and of my own identity and um, and trying to do something, anything in by my own hand that will define me more than the acts of some other person on some other person that I had nothing to do with. This is gonna be either a horrible question or a great question, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think came out of this that was good? Well, I can speak to that personally. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's I, what I mean, for you. For me, yeah, because I yeah. mean- In other words, as a lesson. As a lesson, sure. Um, one of the big lessons that I've devoted myself to is this, I mean, I got a very, very rude and deep dive awakening into the human fallibility as that are that is a part of all of our institutions um, and including the human fall- fallibility when it comes to judgment. And, you know, I lived alongside, a lot of people who had committed crimes for a long time. Those were my companions. That was my world for a long time. And prior to this experience, I never thought that I would ever have to think about prison or the criminal justice system ever. It just wasn't a part of my life. I thought, you know, bad people go through the criminal justice system and they go to jail and I'm not a bad person, so I don't have to think about it. 
And I had the very, very shocking realization that it's way more complicated than that, that we all are implicated in how our criminal justice system targets and um, and punishes people and what the outcomes of that are, whether or not we are actually facilitating people to be better citizens who don't commit crimes, or if we're just putting them through this horrible cycle of criminality that doesn't help anyone. Um, and I just very, very, <laughs> I aged, I matured very quickly. I didn't get to live a sort of frivolous my years of my 20s, but I did learn that there is work to be done in this field. And I felt like I I now feel like I have I, I'm not someone who's gone to to you know school to study this. I'm not someone who works in law enforcement, but I am someone who knows the realities of this world and knows more than I should ever know about why people commit crimes, um, what we can do about it, how can we change things to make it so that innocent people are less likely to go through the experience that I've been through, and what kinds of things innocent people need and that they don't get, what kind of support they need once they're released. All of these are issues that need work that I never, ever, ever would have even dreamed of had I not been through this experience. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. You've said that you've waffled between periods of silence where you're trying to be invisible and aggressively trying to clear your name. Where are you on that spectrum today? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, And it's an ongoing question that I ask myself because I think when people see me as a public person, I think they imagine it to be more romantic than it is. I think it gets idealized like, oh, look at, you know, she's telling her truth and going after, you know, and it takes a toll. Like it's it's hard work to be constantly judged um to sort of put myself in a position to be constantly judged um and and yet i feel compelled to respond when i see people being hurt i i it's my sort of care harm foundation when i see that harm is being done and that i can do something about it i feel the need to step in which is why i have pushed to talk about issue broader issues that i that i learned like the imprison or the experience of imprisonment the experience of judgment the experience of public shaming these are all issues that didn't, didn't just happen to me they happen to a lot of people the other side of it is that i know that through no you know fault of my own or whatever like 
my wrongful conviction case became international headlines for over a decade. And the vast majority of wrongful conviction cases do not get that kind of coverage. And a lot of people spend a lot more time in prison than I do for things that they never did. And they don't get a voice. They don't get to... People don't listen to them and people don't relate to them. A lot of times they're people who come from way worse circumstances than I did. People who are poor, people who are dealing with um, you know, either neglect or abuse in their home life. That's why they, as a human being, were sort of just thrown away like, oh, you know, you might as well have committed the crime because you're the type of person who would have committed this crime. And I do not fit that category. And so when I go in front of people and I say, hey, it could happen to you, people understand it more. It, it speaks to them more. They get it. Because I'm this college-educated girl from a middle-class family, grew up in the suburbs, had everything going for me, nothing bad had ever happened to me, and yet it also happened to me. So I feel like I'm a little bit of a bridge builder. At the same time, I got to say, like since becoming a mom, um, it's funny. I um, Part of the reason why I've often considered just disappearing is is not because I don't feel like I have something to say, but I've repeatedly throughout my life felt like people didn't actually care what I had to say, that there was a version of me in their mind that they just, they wanted to keep that sort of villain idea in their mind. They didn't like it when I came out of the woodwork and complicated that vision of myself. And so I, there's been pushback and, and rejection. And I... And so part of me was like, it feels like nothing I say matters and people don't ever listen. And I've been talking about you know, media exploitation of crime victim stories for a long time. But just last summer, right when I gave birth, honestly, like two weeks after I gave birth, that Stillwater movie came out. I wrote a piece. Um, I actually wrote a Twitter thread about how I felt exploited and how this was a problem in the media industry and the social media industry and the Hollywood industry. And maybe, just maybe, we should be mindful of that when we're taking other people's stories and turning them into entertainment content. And for for whatever reason... Just for for context, um, Mm -hmm. I've not seen the movie. um, Mm -hmm. And I'm sure people listening don't know exactly what you're referring to. Can you explain the Stillwater and how it it relates to you? Absolutely. So... um, Tom McCarthy, who's famous director, um, created a movie with Matt Damon as the star um, called Stillwater. And the premise of Stillwater is a father from Oklahoma goes to France in order to help prove his daughter's innocence. She has been implicated in the murder of her roommate with whom she had a sexual relationship. And so that's the story. And the I, you know, had no idea that this movie existed until headlines started coming out saying, "Hey, Stillwater, you may remember this story as being inspired by the Amanda Knox saga." Indeed, they call it like the sordid Amanda Knox saga. And I felt compelled to push back on a number of issues with that. I hadn't even seen the film yet because I was like, I don't even know how they're depicting this quote 
you know, inspired by my story? What is the inspired by Amanda character going to be like? How are they going to be portraying me? In the past, there have been similar shows or novels that have purportedly said inspired by the Amanda Knox story. And how do they portray me as some like party animal lunatic? And I was like, well, is this going to be yet another example of people just casually portraying me as a party animal lunatic? Or is it going to be a thoughtful examination? Either way, no one ever spoke to me about it. No one ever consulted with me. No one ever asked me, hey, is no one ever thought maybe, just maybe this is going to impact Amanda Knox directly. Um, even if we call her Abigail or whatever it is, people are going to understand that this is sure. Amanda. And indeed, when they advertise the film saying, inspired by Amanda Knox story, it gives the impression that somehow I'm involved, I've been I've been consulted, whatever. And that, and the reality is no. As a quote public figure, I don't have any say and I and I have no recourse. And I wasn't attempting to be litigious when this movie came out. I mostly wanted to start a conversation and say, like, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but people who find themselves at the center of true crime stories, our stories are constantly exploited and no one ever bothers to like cons- like ask for our consent, think about how it's going to impact us. And I think that that's a, a question we should talk about because when we talk about um, you know appropriation in these stories, there's a lot of conversation in Hollywood about a reckoning of of cultural appropriation and when we've you know used people's identities as stereotypes, like the you know the 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 thug black guy in all the films. Like, are we in some way misrepresenting an entire community and not giving them a voice in their own portrayals in these stories? Well, that's a really important conversation to be had. We're not having that same conversation about actual individuals who are named, who have, when we are talking about their actual worst experiences that we've pulled from the headlines to inspire our fiction. Um, So I just wanted to propose that idea. Maybe we should be talking about that. And for whatever reason, I am still a little bit perplexed by it. It resonated this time. The Atlantic picked it up as an essay. And I have been a little bit more public since speaking about, again, like, first of all, how was my own story misrepresented? Who got to author that story? Have I had a role in the authorship of that story? The answer is no. And if I were the author of that story, how would I go about it differently? And one of the big ways that I I point out to people is this never should have been the Amanda Knox saga. The Amanda Knox saga refers to the murder of Meredith Kircher by Rudy Gaudet. And the fact that nobody remembers that is a huge, huge disservice to the truth. If you want to talk about my own saga... You need to be able to separate it in your mind from what Rudy Gaudet did to Meredith Kircher. Yeah. Because if anything, I'm an indirect victim of his actions as well. Yeah, for sure. When one hears the name Amanda Knox, it conjures up all sorts of images, right? What is it like for you? I always try and put myself in the person's shoes. What is it like for you when you pull your credit card out and somebody sees the name? And looks up and goes, are you that Amanda Knox? Or what is it like when you make a reservation and Mm. you say, table for two, Amanda Knox? Mm. 
walk me through or tell me some any story that comes to mind, either good or bad or indifference about your name. Sure. Um, so what I can say is that happens quite often. Um, so I go to pay for something and somebody recognizes my name. They look at the name, they look up at me, they like that sparkle of recognition you know happens in their eye. The look, I know the look. A celebrity will um, tell you that they know <laughs> when they walk into a room, when they get that, the eye raises that somebody will go, oh mm-hmm. shit, it's going to be one of those things. So you mm-hmm. you have pattern recognition now. You, you've seen it. Oh yes, I have absolutely seen it. Um, and for the record, I don't ever really put my name on reservations. I put my husband's name, mm-hmm. even when I get like, um, you know, say someone is picking me up from the airport, they'll hold that little like sign. It's never my name because I just don't need to be advertising attention to myself. But what about, be- I- what about before him, though? Um, before him, yeah. Um, occasionally, I would do just Amanda, or um, I would give a pseudonym. pseudonym. I wrote. Under a pseudonym for a long time for a local newspaper, um, but yes. So when I inevitably, because I did not change my name, I specifically chose not to change my name for the same reason that I specifically chose not to plead guilty to a crime that I didn't commit. I felt like my name shouldn't be the problem, and if I change my name, that's a little bit me sort of giving in to the the problem is Amanda Knox, not the problem is everyone else. <laughs> And, yep. and their problem with Amanda Knox. Yep. So today, um, it comes in all stripes because the vast majority of the people I meet in person are actually kind. If they recognize my name, they it, it could it runs the gamut from someone being sort of like very sheepishly like. Oh my goodness! Uh, it's you. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, your total is seven ninety five. <laughs> you know, or it's um, somebody who's saying, um, "I've actually had really nice experiences where people have said, I'm anticipating them saying, "Oh my gosh, I followed your story." But what they'll say is, "Oh my gosh, I listened to your podcast, Labyrinths, and it's awesome. Thank you for making that." And I'll be like, "Oh." Wow. Oh, thank you. Yay. Oh, wow. good. I'm it's, recognized it's, for something I want to be recognized for. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I've had the bad ones where it's it's not a lot of people think, assume that it's gonna be like the versions of online trolling where people are just like murderer to my face. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. What happens is people start interrogating me about what the they've story. seen in the media. So, like, hey, you're a man of Knox. Did you really do cartwheels in the police station? Because I always thought that was super weird. Why would you do that? And like, as if I'm just there to answer questions about the worst experience of my life to sate their curiosity. Like, I'm not on trial for you right now. So I'm not going to just talk about the worst experience of my life to a perfect stranger because you've had unprecedented access to it in the past. And that is the problem of this feeling that they, because they've had unprecedented access to it in the past, they are entitled to that access in the present. And I struggle with what to do about that because the last thing I want to do is have a bad encounter with someone who's already predisposed to be judgmental towards me and then have them go on you know, Twitter and talk about how much of an evil bitch I am. Sorry, I don't yeah. know if you allow swearing on your, I've, <laughs> on I've, your podcast. I've, sw- I've sworn nine times already. Right. Um, I will say one situation that was really bad um, was a roommate of mine wanted to adopt a dog. And 
he adopted this dog from a local shelter and the shelter was very specific about like they um about having everyone who's going to be living in the household with this dog coming in and meeting them so they can get a sense of like is this dog going to be safe mm-hmm. and if so of course i i'm living with this is my roommate so i go with him i meet the dog i fill out a questionnaire that's like oh you know do you how much time does the dog like, what are you going to feed the dog? Whatever. And it's it's not my dog. It's my roommate's dog. He's. I just have to go there because I live in the same house as him. Well, this dog happened to have um, a... Um, he, it broke out of things. Like it had a problem with just like being in enclosed spaces. Like it, it was known for escaping people's yards. And that's why it had been brought back to the adoption agency. It was a, it was a dog that had issues like that. And one day... It broke out of our house by jumping through a window. Like it was, it was desperate to get out of our house, jumped through this window. And in the process of jumping through this window, it hurt itself because it jumped through a window. Mm -hmm. Not badly, just like a few scrapes and cuts on its paws, but like still, it was just, and it was so traumatic that my, um, my roommate was like, I don't know if I can handle this dog. I don't have a big enough yard for this dog. It clearly needs extra attention. So he brought it back to the shelter like every other person before him. And the shelter people looked at the injuries on this dog and then went to Twitter to say that Amanda Knox had been cutting up dogs and I'm how much of a psychopath I was. And I like noticed this one day on my Twitter feed because they tagged me and I was like, oh my God, I had nothing to do with this dog. This They knew this dog had a history of breaking out of people's houses and yards. And yet they decide that because they've heard a horrible story about me once that they're going to assume that I purposely harmed an animal like with no evidence whatsoever. Like I was shocked. And my roommate was furious. He went back and like tore them a new one because he was like, how dare you? Like she's gone through hell and you're just going to make, you're giving them food for trolls who are now going to talk about how I'm like an animal sacrificer. Like it, it was outrageous. And so again, it's that like, okay, here I am just trying to exist as a person in the world. Regular things happen, but I know that there are some people out there, a lot of people out there who are always, always, always going to assume the worst about me and blame me for things that I had nothing to do with. Do you find yourself not wanting to be public? In other words, you know, when you go on an airplane and somebody's looking at your name, they may, in a professional environment like that, they may not want to say, are you the... But you kind of look and go, I know I could see, I know that look and I know that they know, but they're not saying anything. Mm-hmm. For me, it would make me feel like, fuck it. Like I don't even like I don't even want to go out there in the world because I know that when any anybody anytime somebody sees it, it's a thing. And I'm using the word celebrity because only because there's there's no other word I can think of or no other mm. group of people I can think of that have to endure this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It does that ever come up for you where you're just finding yourself retreating more mm-hmm. or not wanting to use your name or not wanting to you know like you got you have a kid now right now you got a whole new set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You got the PTA. Now you're Amanda Knox at the PTA. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, like, I, I hear you. And and you, you're you right me? to bring up my daughter because the, the big thing that I've been weighing now 
is um, how this is going to impact her. Yeah. And, you know, gratefully, I most of the time I'm working from home and we we live in a kind of isolated community. So at right now that she's a baby and isn't aware of all of these things, like we're sort of in this nice uh, limbo space of it's not yet going to impact her. But I do, I do worry about how it's going to impact her because if I'm living in the shadow of my own wrongful conviction, I and I struggle with that. The last thing I want for her is to live under that shadow as well. And I think, um, you know, a part of me does often uh, fantasize about retreating, but the reality is that the world. I tried to retreat. When I first came home, I tried to just go back to my life and be an anonymous, quiet, not in the public eye person. And I was constantly chased down by paparazzi. And at all points in my life, I, you know, I tried to keep my, uh, the location of my wedding and the date, uh, like all of that very private. And I found out the day before I was about to get married that the paparazzi had been calling every wedding location in Seattle and had finally landed upon where I, the location where I was having my wedding. And I found out because the sweet old man who was running the office of this little spot who was not, uh, you know, media savvy came up to me like with his cane and he like, with this devastated look on his face was like, I think I screwed up. Oh my God. And, and he didn't say that, you know, it was Amanda Knox's wedding, come and visit. Like, here's our address. But he did like, when the person was like, we're calling from the Daily Mail and we're wondering if you have a, a wedding uh, this, you know, tomorrow. He yeah. was like, oh yes, we have a wedding planned tomorrow. Yeah. And then afterwards he was like, oh no. He was answering a like, question. He was just answering and he was just like, oh no, they're going to come now. Just just in case it's Amanda. And so, you know, I had to redo a whole, I had to hire security for my own wedding that I was not anticipating at the very last minute to make sure that people weren't going to be sneaking into my wedding to try to get pictures of me on my wedding day. Well, listen, like, about about, <laughs> that, about that wedding, you had one hell of a wedding. We're gonna talk, we're gonna talk about that crazy wedding that you had. <laughs> That is not a normal wedding. I had a. There's a yeah. couple of things uh, as we start moving towards wrapping. There's a couple of things I want to uh, bring up, and that that's one of them. I want to talk about your wedding, but we're going to get there in a second. In 2017, you spoke publicly mm-hmm. alongside Macklemore, Seattle's own <laughs> Macklemore. That's uh, right. <laughs> and uh, and and the other one who's who's got a little story, Monica Lewinsky, right? Yeah. Um, and you spoke about your experience um, at the uh, Italian. Innocence Project. How did that influence the kind of work that you're doing today? That's a really great question. So first of all, um, being given that opportunity to speak publicly for the first time about my experience um, was very mind-opening for me because it it showed me that I, what I, all of the things that I had learned from my experience may matter to people. It, it, Genuinely was an eye-opening experience to me where I thought, oh, maybe I can actually 
have a conversation with this horrible experience and I can be one voice in the you know thousands of voices who are talking about this and I have something worthwhile to say and that people are going to listen to. And Monica, I was I was terribly nervous going into this thing. I you know second guessing myself the entire time. Are people going to throw stuff at me? Like I had no idea how people would react to me. And I knew that Monica was going to be speaking at this same event. And, you know, Lance Armstrong and Macklemore and I think a Hell's Angel, the the subject of the uh of Sounds the like the beginning was... of a, a bar joke. Three, you know, Lance <laughs> Armstrong, a Hell's Angel guy and a man that knocks walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah. And and the subject of the whole thing was controversy. So yeah. again, like, okay, here I am, a public person who's controversial, great. But I got to tell my side of it and what it feels like to be considered a controversial person for something that I had, you know, that was not ultimately my fault. Um, but I, again, I was super scared going into it. I had no idea if anyone would really care or listen. And Monica invited me very kindly up to her hotel room to give me basically a pep talk because she had been through that whole drama as well, where people had written her off as some slutty bimbo for years who had nothing to say. And she had finally come out and given her TED talk that was really well received, really well done. Speaking about like the the punishment of shaming and of dehumanizing people. So we we had a, a bond because we had gone through somewhat similar experiences. And she gave me a pep talk about like, you know, walking into that environment and how to like prepare myself emotionally, how to take care of myself afterwards. She really big sistered me through that experience. And we've remained in touch ever since. Um, And that began my journey of articulating aloud what, not just what happened to me, but what it all means and what lessons I've taken away from it that I potentially think could be, you know, helpful to others. I don't assume anything about what's going to be helpful to others, but I have had the experience of people asking me, reaching out to me on Instagram or whatever, saying like, hey, I'm going through a really terrible moment where I feel like no one is really you know, giving me the benefit of the doubt. How do I deal with this emotionally? And so I've you know, walked people through the experience of standing strong in the face of adversity, of... Um, of coming away from traumatic experiences unbroken, like battered, but unbroken and turning those, taking whatever it is that life throws at you because life throws something at all of us and making the best of that you can from it, which is all you can really do. How did you become as articulate as you are? <laughs> um, like you're like you're like uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not just blowing smoke. You you are extraordinarily articulate. And if I go back and I listen to this podcast, there's no us and ums. Like you're tight. Uh, like you speak in prose, like perfect prose. Where did that come from? It's funny that you say no ums because very often whenever my husband like is in a uh in an interview with me, he'll point out all of, all of my likes and ums. <laughs> well, like, but- <laughs> you know, look, here's the thing. If you, if you edit out those fillers, those likes, and even a few of the ums, then you become the weird person that doesn't blink. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, you're like, sure. like, 
you, 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 they, you're not your human. data at that point. Your, yeah, your data, <laughs> like your data. Your, yeah, exactly. But where did, it was, is that an intentional thing where you are doing work to improve that? Does it come naturally to you? Was it something in, in jail where you had so much time to read that you got really articulate? Like, where do you think that comes from? I think a number of things. And I'm glad you brought up the prison aspect because it's true. I spent a, a large quantity of my time reading, just reading, 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 and writing, writing, writing. So for a long time, I spent more time reading and writing than talking. The other part of it is that I think it comes slightly from learned paranoia simply because in the past, I've understood that any wrong word taken mm. the wrong way could be used against me. Got so it. I've been very mindful of how I communicate my ideas. I feel like I'm less paranoid today, but I have a, a learned introspection and self-editing uh, to my approach to speaking because I am self-editing like I'm trying to articulate my thoughts, my mind in the best possible version of them so that I don't get attacked, <laughs> honestly. Because uh, I've just had that experience of, again, people assuming the worst about anything I do or anything I say. But beyond that, I have been haunted by the why question. Why did this happen to me? Why do people judge people the way they do? And that's led me down a very, very deep introspective rabbit hole. And I think that it's been good for me because it's allowed me to process my pain in a way that I feel is productive. But it's also made me have to articulate really, really difficult concepts or experiences in ways that are understandable to others when it's not intuitive. Got it. And that's been a challenge. Got it, makes sense. Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may wanna join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Let's talk about your man. Um, the love of your life, his name is Christopher. Um, and I understand that the two of you guys got married in a uh, a time traveler themed <laughs> wedding. Where <It's>, yes, <laughs> okay. I want I want I want I want everybody to listen closely because I, I, it's going to say you're you're about to say did he say that where you two emerged from futuristic pods and you read <laughs> your wedding vows and you gave your guests a book of poems. Mm -hmm. that you wrote, that you mm -hmm. called that book, The Cardio Tesseract. Amanda, what are you smoking out there? What the hell is, <laughs> what, what the hell is happening? And, and listen, um, I'm not done with you yet because then we're going to go to DomCom. So let's answer that okay, one first. Okay, great. Absolutely. So uh, trying to keep this story short, my husband proposed to me by making a meteorite land in my backyard. And inside it had a data crystal from the future that explained our life together. So then he in the moment realized, oh, if we're married in the future, then I must have proposed to you 
right now. My So the long story short is both my husband and I are sci-fi nerds. We're both writers. We both love a good narrative. We love a good story. We love wearing a good costume at Ren Fair. And we decided that for the biggest party of our lives, we wanted to lean very hard into that nerdy aspect of ourselves. So we constructed a very, very uh, complicated time-traveling narrative that involved our guests being scattered across space and time and arriving at our wedding in future garb as T-Rexes, as Marie Antoinettes, and them having to re-stitch our time streams together because in the future we had uh, looked ourselves up in the Encyclopedia Galactica and it had destroyed our time streams. So oh, it was, all. we had, okay. yeah, that, well, you know, makes, we just had yeah, that to. that makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, that actually, I followed, I followed everything you said. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Are you, are you, star, are you a Star Trek person? Oh, absolutely. Love okay. Star Trek. The original, the biggest crutch. next generation, <laughs> or which one? Next gen is my absolute favorite. Me too. That's, but... Is that why you said data? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have a big exactly, crush on data. I freaking <laughs> love that show. And I'm dying to get uh, Patrick Stewart on this one. He's incredible. I know. Yeah, actually, we're trying to also sort of get the next gen cast. We've already had LeVar Burton and Brent Spiner on Labyrinth. So it's just a matter of time. Amazing. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about Labyrinth in a second, but I have to go to Dom Khan. All right. Mm -hmm. So the New York Times, New York Times says that you're at a DomCom dominatrix convention and you're getting flogged in a thong in a ballroom. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's happening? Is with, what is happening with your life? What, what? How does this? How does this? I, I don't even know what question to ask. Let's let's start at the let's start at the the the, the dominatrix. Is that a is that a theme in your life? Was that just a fun night? Is it Tuesday? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe the questions should uh, go as follows. Okay. Uh, what? Like really? <laughs> and the what and really is yes, that is an accurate picture. I okay. did find myself in a hotel ballroom in a thong strapped to a cross getting flogged by a professional dominatrix. That is okay. the what. Okay. The now question is the why. Okay. Why yeah, did I great. find myself in that situation yeah. at all? Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to well, sit back and let you do it. That was good. <laughs> the why is because I was exploring certain themes at the time of uh, the vilification of women and women's sexuality. And one of the things that had always troubled me about the case was how my own very vanilla sexuality was twisted and warped to portray me as a kind of femme fatale dominatrix who used men to commit violence against other women. And I've often, you know, people have interrogated me since then about my sex life and were you really a kinky person? And my response has always been no, but also even if I were a kinky person, it shouldn't have mattered because kinky people don't just murder people. Like that's a gross misrepresentation. It's a gross misrepresentation of a, a legitimate Kinky sexual people. subculture. It's <laughs> right. kinky people. But right. like I had also never met a kinky person. And so a part of me was like, I wonder what kinky people think about their lifestyle and sexuality being used to vilify people. 
So what I did was I started researching professional dominatrixes. And the like premier dominatrix is a wonderful woman um, named Mistress Cyan, who's based in LA. Um, and she's older now, trans woman who has just been a leader and a community builder in the kink community here in the United States. And she started this convention called DomCon that was, um, it was a place where people who very much had to live this sexuality that was stigmatized in like their own local communities, they could really like just spread their wings and network and learn things from other people who are in the kinky community. And I I reached out to her and asked her if I could have an interview, um, if I could talk to her about DomCon, if maybe I could go and see her work at DomCon. But I wasn't even sure if that was okay because I was like, I'm not even a part of this community. Am I like a weird lurking person who's just like a peeping Tom on this community? I didn't want to be that. And she said, no, 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 you can come to, as my special guest. So she invited me as her special guest to this event. I sort of shadowed her throughout the entire event. And I felt like I would be doing a great disservice to her profession if I did not actually submit, my, uh, submit myself to, to her good graces. What does it feel like to get flogged in a thong? You know, going into that ballroom, I was deeply, deeply nervous because again, it's me. And the last thing that I need is for people to be like, oh, look, Amanda's at a dominatrix convention. Of course she is because she's a sexual psychopath. Yeah. Um, so I walked into that space being very nervous. But what I had discovered when I, in the few days that I was there immersed in the kink community is that the kink community is so just sweet and respectful and thoughtful and considerate. And at no point during my time at DomCon did I feel singled out, did I feel judged. Um, mostly what I felt was people just being genuinely like, curious and engaged and like, and kind and like, Oh, nice to see you here. What, you know, what brings you here? You know, like just really nice, like just so sweet and, and so thoughtful about people's privacy and also people's consent. I, I came away from this whole experience being like, we do it wrong in the vanilla community. We leave so much unspoken and unthought through. Like we just sort of assume things about each other's sexuality that maybe is not the right assumption. And so we should have com we should have more open conversations about what we're curious about, what our lines are, what what we want right now as opposed to later. Like these are all conversations I that <laughs> I agree with you. I gotta tell you, you know, it's it, it could be argued that uh, people that are into dominatrix or swingers or you know anybody in that world, they have a better relationship than the vanilla world because they're highly communicative about mm -hmm. what they're into, what they're not into. Mom and pops are not having those conversations. And if they're into some deep, weird, dark shit, they'll have an affair or they'll do something right. stupid. Or they'll exactly. lie, or they'll go to mm -hmm. porn, or you know whatever. But at least these people are like, "Hey, I, I I want an apple in my mouth, and I want to spin on this thing, and I want you to spank my." You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and it's like, okay, cool, no judgment, like everything's cool. Yeah, everyone's. Yeah, exactly. So I I found that to be a really really sweet community. So at the end of like the final day, I like I felt comfortable enough to 
expose myself that way. And and to the for the record, it wasn't like I was the only person in this room. This room was full of it was a play party, which means that like at there, you know, there are various, you know. Uh, furniture and accoutrement where people yeah. can be doing things with their partners or meeting new people and trying new things. And so I was one of the many people that Mistress yeah, Diane right. was. You were welcomed into an environment that had been pre vetted. They knew what they're doing. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Okay. I want to talk about Knox Productions. Um, mm-hmm. What is it and why did you guys create it? So Christopher and I um, have. We are Knox Robinson Productions. It's yeah. a it's a very small team, but we created this entity because we um, we were haphazardly brought into the um, and unintentionally brought into the podcasting world, but have um, several years ago. But we've really really enjoyed this medium of intimacy. We found that people um, so we can talk about really intimate stories with people. People feel really comfortable when they're not necessarily on camera. There's something about like just the, the hearing someone's voice, but not being, you know, I, I feel like even this DomCon episode of the podcast that you're referring to, it would have been a very different episode if I if you had actually seen me on the cross getting flogged as opposed to like hearing me talk about it and with the kind of intimacy that I've had, or like when I did my miscarriage episode, it very different if you were seeing the blood in the toilet as opposed sure. to me just talking about it sure. and and talking about my feelings. So we've really, really enjoyed this medium where I feel like we have the time and space and flexibility to craft really thoughtful, well-researched stories while also arriving at a very intimate place with our guests and using this as an opportunity for them to have their own voice in their own story be the primary um, delivery. Um, I've very often been very uh, disappointed in traditional media because it's very fast moving. It feels like nobody has the time to do the homework in order to get the piece right. They just want the sound bite that they've already pre-imagined. And if you don't deliver it, they're going to take something that you said out of context. They're never going to get the story at, at its heart. And when Chris and I are working independently like we do here, we can take the time and we can, and our only agenda is to get it right in the in the eyes and the voice of the person that we're talking to. So it really matters to us. Are you going to, is this like a podcast network where you're going to have different shows under your umbrella? We would love to do that in the future. Right now, we don't have the capacity because, but we are we are in a building space right now. We are working on hiring an audio engineer to assist Chris with audio engineering so that we can expend more resources on not just our stories, but other people who have interesting stories to tell as well. I want to ask you about NFTs. Um, okay. I understand that you want to dip your toe into the NFT world and create NFTs out of famous tabloid covers with your face on it. Where did that idea come from? (laughs) Well, I was inspired by um, the disaster girl meme and how this young girl whose face had been plastered all over the internet um, reclaimed the original photo and turned it into an NFT and put herself through college that way. And I thought, you know what? That that makes so much sense. That you know, she was a young girl. Her image was taken and put out there. People just recycled it for their own entertainment purposes, and it was all in good fun. In no in no way did it 
impact her in a negative way. But it was still her face that tons and tons of people were photoshopping into yet another photo for yet another meme. And I was thinking about how there are countless images of me on the internet that were taken by tabloid photographers without my consent that I do not have rights to that belong to someone else. So literally my face belongs to someone else who is profiting off the back of my suffering. And I thought there's gotta be a way that I can reclaim that and I can make a statement about that in the process. And I've broadened the scope of my goal here to be Again, like it's not just about me, it's about this broader conversation of when people's identities have been exploited for entertainment content and what can we do to own up to like to take ownership of the mistakes that have been made in the past and compensate the people who have who's those like those images have been at their expense in the past. How can we compensate them in the present? And I'm thinking a lot about also exonerees who you know, not every exoneree who gets exonerated is compensated for the time that they spend in prison. It's it's all the laws are inconsistent. They're different from place to place. Some people blame exonerees for their own wrongful conviction and say you're not entitled to compensation. So another sort of mission that I have in mind is finding ways to use NFTs to compensate exonerees who have not been compensated by the criminal justice system. Really, really creative. Speaking of compensation, didn't you get a little bit of cash from the Italian government? I did. I got a small, I believe it was 18,000 euro because they had denied me the right to an attorney when I was under interrogation. But I was never compensated for my wrongful imprisonment, nor was my co-defendant, Raffaele, who spent four years in prison and as an innocent person, ever compensated a single cent. So I think about you a lot when I see, um, when I walk outside my door and I see the college kids here, this is the time of year where they're coming. And I think about what must have been going through your minds uh, at that time when you were you know, a young college kid. Looking back now through mm-hmm. adult eyes, do you see yourself wanting to come back to Italy ever? Or are you like, I'm done with that, I, not for me. Oh. Oh, no, no. Um, I mean, but before the tragedy struck, I was having I was the, I was having the time of my life. I truly was. I was around really sweet, wonderful people. I was immersed in a new culture, and I was enjoying the food and the wine and and the friendship. and i I was I was I felt like I was the luckiest person in the world. And I would love to go back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually have plans to come back pretty soon. Um, and I can't go super into that because I'm on a mission, but uh, it's a, I'm also going to have fun on <laughs> while I'm on this mission. Let's do a quick uh, rapid round as we, uh, as we wrap up. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? The ability to sleep anywhere, everywhere. <laughs> was, was that true in prison? Yes, it was actually one of my saving graces is um, whenever I just couldn't take it anymore, I would take a nap. Wow, it's incredible. Okay, that is a superpower. Um, Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? 
Um, I'm a big crafter. So I'm always collecting things that I can make art out of. The other thing that I collect, kind of, um, I love dirndls. So what? whenever I... It's a traditional German dress. Um, like imagine Oktoberfest. Do you still want to be a seamstress in, living in Germany? I, I often fantasize about that. And indeed, my husband and I have talked about living for a year or two um, in like abroad, potentially in Germany, where I have family still. Um, when our when we have kids who are older and can appreciate the language and the cultural differences. So that's still on the dream agenda. But okay. yes, I still am a seamstress and I often collect fabrics that I'm turning into things all the time. All right, this one's going to be a weird one to ask you. What do people never ask you, never ask you, but you wish they did? They always ask me about the thing, but they never ask me about this. Um, very few people ever ask me about what it feels like to have lost a friend to murder mm. because people forget that she was my friend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I hadn't been accused of her murder, people would assume like people would automatically be like, oh my gosh, wow, you lost a friend. And I very, very rarely, if ever, have anyone say, you know, I'm I'm sorry that that happened, and yeah. um, and that's got to be really hard. Mm, that's great. What book have you reread the most? Uh, the Harry Potter books, <laughs> honestly, in the, because in I've read them in, in multiple Italian. languages. I've read them in German. I've read them in Italian. I've read them multiple times in English. I introduced my husband to them, so we re we listened through the whole the series again. Um, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. What is two questions? What is your guilty pleasure? Hmm. Uh, what is my guilty pleasure? Which I suppose would mean what do I enjoy but feel guilty about? Um. Foot massages. <laughs> you, you, I am constantly you and demanding my wife. Foot my wife massages. Actually, my wife actually sends me TikTok videos of how to do it. It's it's crazy. Women I kind really, of am shameless about it. I just like stick my feet in my husband's face exactly and exactly what it. my wife does. It's the exact same thing. All right, last question. What one question would you like to ask me? Um, what have you enjoyed most about Italy so far? The humanity of the mm. people, the um, connecting with people on a soulful level and having conversations that would to many seem pointless. Like mm. I've had more conversations about olive oil than I ever thought I would have in my <laughs> freaking life. I am talking about gelato and wine and domani. It's a domani, mm, just a dom yeah. tom tomorrow. Just everything. <laughs> I love the um, the passion of uh, what, what do they call it? Um, uh, la dolce faniente, the, mm. the, the sweetness of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. That 
life of joy and ease where you, you've got a, a bruschetta in your hands and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> like you gotta take it. Like that thing feels so deeply fulfilling compared to what my life was like living, not here, in, I was in LA, living in the States. Yeah. It was business and rush and and it was just all entrepreneurship and money. And and I'm not saying that um, like I, I don't want to be America bashing. I'm not. I, I you know, I'm American. I understand it. But for me, the thing that I love most most is none of that at all is here in my life. Like at all. I don't mm-hmm. know that anybody's ever even asked me what I do for a living. Like it never, I couldn't go to a party. I could not go to a party anywhere, cocktail party or whatever in LA, New York, whatever, without somebody going, what do you do? It's never been asked here ever. Like it's it's so things like, you know what I'm talking about. Things like that. Totally. That being present. It's just being present for the sake of being present. Being present for the sake of being present. Uh, Okay. Amanda, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? I would love it if you followed me on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Amanda Knox. On Instagram, at Amama Knox. And I have a podcast called Labyrinths. You can learn more at patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. We will link everything up in the show notes. Amanda, thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.